Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human? and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. When the Humanities Center at Texas Tech was established a half decade ago, one of our founding goals was how we might encourage collaboration across the disciplines. As you heard in our September episode, one of the practical ways we do this is through our annual theme, which programs lectures, academic panels, and workshops across a topic. In the past, for instance, we've assembled scholars and writers from a broad array of fields to help us consider the meanings and human activity at the heart of topics like futures, food, or play. Our center is a crucial point of intersection for Texas Tech's thriving research programs and scholarly departments in the humanities, and as we declared from the outset, part of our mission will always be the pursuit of richer conceptualizations of human cultural production. In other words, we understand that there's a difference between the perspectives and methodologies governing how a literary scholar or a historian or an anthropologist conceive humanity, and we reflect that understanding in the juxtapositions we encourage through all our programs. Often, we're actively scrutinizing the human itself as an object of categorical inquiry. As the philosopher Rosie Bridotti wrote in 2013, just before our center was founded, Scholarly orthodoxies around the human had long been rooted in the binary opposition between the given and the constructed, a polarity Bridotti identified was currently being replaced by a non-dualistic understanding of nature-culture interaction. Our forest theme this year engages this crucial shift, pushing back on any understanding of humanity that isolates us from our surrounding environment and bridging untenable divisions between culture and the natural world. On today's show, we'll spotlight another Humanity Center initiative through which we encourage interdisciplinary collaboration, our working groups. We'll hear from representatives of two of these scholarly collectives, the Animal and the Humanities, which the Center funded between 2017 and 2019, and our newest working group, the Medieval and Renaissance Studies Center, which we began funding this year. Both of these projects are exemplars of the Humanities Center border crossing ethos, as you'll hear about in detail after this short break. Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanities Center at Texas Tech? Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office, the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show, or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. If you're interested in donating to the Humanities Center, 
please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red donate button on the front page. Thank you. First up on the show today is Belinda Kleinhans, an associate professor of German here at Texas Tech and the team leader for our first ever working group, The Animal in the Humanities. Belinda will tell you about the intellectual foundation for that collective and how they realized those ideas through their activities. Hello, my name is Dr. Belinda Kleinhans. I'm an associate professor of German in the Department of Classical and Modern Languages and Literatures here at Tech. Today, I want to introduce you to the work of the Animal in the Humanities Working Group that was generously sponsored by the Humanities Center since its founding in 2017. This is a very interdisciplinary working group of five core scholars from five different disciplines, which consist of myself from German studies, John Busterian from Spanish, Katie Schroeder from Animal Sciences, Lucas Wood from French, and Pamela Zinn from Classics. And together, we formed this working group that started out as a monthly theoretical discussion on issues about animals and animal studies. So if you're asking yourself right now, why animals and what does that have to do with the humanities? I can answer that for you. The animal in both its real and symbolic dimensions is a key figure for understanding the so-called human in general, as well as the distinct configuration of the human and the humanities in the 21st century. The animal is always at the core of the questions we ask in humanistic scholarship, namely, who are we? How do we or should we relate to the world in which we live and to others with whom we share this world? To tackle these questions and to find answers, we put on a small symposium in April 2018 for which we invited guest speaker Dr. Alice Kuznia from the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, to explore issues of teaching, representation, violence, food culture, and othering, and to share ideas regarding why we should look at animals today and what we can learn from their entanglement with human culture. This first small symposium was a great success and got us two additional key members to the group, namely Kevin Chua and Joe Arredondo, both from the School of Art. Together, we planned an international interdisciplinary conference at Texas Tech entitled Animals Slash Language that happened from March 21st to March 23rd, 2019. This conference was unique in bringing for the first time scholars from the humanities and scholars from the social sciences and the animal sciences together into dialogue with each other and to share their insights. Animal slash language engaged with a central feature of what has becoming known as the animal turn in the humanities, namely the recognition that animals and language have a complicated relationship with one another in human understanding. What it means to be human has often been thought through and against the figure of the animal, with language traditionally seen as a constitutive of human identity. However, 
the desire for and the realities of communication between animals and humans and among animals themselves put pressure on those mechanisms of distinction in ways that can be both exciting and unsettling. And this conference brought scholars together to think through these mechanisms and to create exciting new ways of looking at it. The conference featured three main keynotes. Susan McHugh, a professor of English at the University of New England, who enlightened us with her talk, The Language of Swarms in Theory and Fiction. From the Heart Sciences, Robin Foster, a certified horse behavior consultant, a research professor at the University of Puget Sound in Seattle, Washington, and an affiliate professor at the University of Washington, who gave a talk entitled Anthropomorphism in Human-Horse Interactions. And last but not least, Dr. Adrienne L. Martin, Professor Emerita of Spanish, who introduced us to animal speak and the construction of character in Miguel de Cervantes' The Colloquy of the Dogs. We branded out the conference by um, bringing in artists as well into the discussion uh, with featured keynote speaker um, Catherine Chalmers, a distinguished artist from New York City, who um, introduced us to her work collaborating with insects. And we ended with a small exhibition of contemporary artists and their engagement with animals. While for the time being, the symposia and the conference work of the animal group is concluded, the discussions and interactions that we have had have not concluded yet. And we look forward to engaging more and welcoming new members relating to the topics of what is the human vis-a-vis -vis the animal? What is the human with the animal? How do animals shape our understanding of our place in the world? And how can we together come to a ethical mode of interaction that respects the other. Thank you. As Belinda showed, a humanity-centered working group might organize around a particular concept or set of concepts and then explore those ideas by bringing together methods from a range of academic fields. As Angela Mariani and Janice Elliott, leaders of our latest working group in medieval and Renaissance studies reveal, these interdisciplinary collaborations are also productive for helping to understand entire historical periods. Here are Angela and Janice with various members of their team to tell you about the ideas that bring them together and the activities they have planned. Hi, everyone. We're members of one of the TTU Humanity Center working groups, and we're all affiliated faculty of Texas Tech's Medieval and Renaissance Studies Center. We're honored to be the recipients of one of the Humanities Center's working group grants, and we're here to talk about our project. With me are Dr. Jacob Baum from the History Department, Dr. Julie Nelson-Couch, English, Dr. Janice Elliott, Art, and I'm Dr. Angela Mariani from Music, and we're joined by Dr. Lane Soberod, representing the Lubbock Independent School District. TTU's Medieval and Renaissance Studies Center was founded in 2011 and has been steadily expanding its educational outreach to the university. Each year, we encourage graduate students across all departments to earn a Medieval and Renaissance Studies Interdisciplinary Graduate Certificate. We also advertise our courses across multiple departments that engage with these early periods. At a MRSC board meeting last year, Abigail Swingen uh, brought up the idea of applying for the Humanities Center Working Group grant, and it was very well received. 
we immediately started brainstorming symposium ideas and other activities to involve the community. Yeah, I think after Tech hosted the TEMA, that's the um, Texas Medieval Association in 2018, uh, in conjunction with the pre-modern Bibles exhibit and symposium that same year, we as a board in the MRSC started to have more serious conversations about doing something like this, especially in the spring and fall of 2019. The idea to host a symposium was intended to uh, unify our faculty and students and to raise the profile of the Medieval Renaissance Studies Center across campus and also beyond to other medieval renaissance, early modern centers all across the country. That was the that was the idea behind doing this. Initially, it had nothing to do with what we were reading, but that was before COVID and Black Lives Matter. And that sort of changed things about what direction we wanted the focus of the symposium to go in. Yeah. And to that point, as we developed this a little bit further, I was teaching the core medieval Renaissance study course, MRST 5301 last spring. And in particular, as a class, we were reading uh, Richard Utz's Medievalism, a manifesto. And that really started to make me think of the significance of this project and the working group in a new light. Students in the class really seemed to want to talk a lot about what kind of public role scholars of the pre-modern period should play and the different methods or media by which they could intervene in these public conversations. The troubling appropriation, or I guess I should say misappropriation, of this kind of mythological view of Europe before modernity, especially the medieval period, by racists, of course, is a deep history that goes back to the 19th century. But its visibility in popular discourse over the last few years has suddenly made understanding this more distant period of the past seem more important than ever. And in his book, Utz offers a really interesting perspective on what medievalists and pre-modernists should do about this, uh, but he doesn't really give us any easy answers or any, you know, a nice blueprint. Uh, he doesn't like the idea that we should act as gatekeepers to the past, sort of guarding the real truth and correcting those who utter untruths, but instead he's stressing the difficulty of the task at hand, which really requires medievalists to open themselves up to a more public, continuous engagement and conversation uh, with the public through a variety of media, fora, modes of communication. And what he really means there is that we, we shouldn't just be writing books and articles to other scholars. Uh, instead, we should be presenting ourselves in museum exhibits, being present in these places, in symposia, online media, and through that engagement, we should be synthesizing what we learn, how we engage with the public into our real scholarly work. The graduate students in this class really spend a lot of time thinking about Utz's points and what they could mean for their own work, while his work, for me, made me start to reframe the underlying significance of developing programming that could engage undergraduate students on medieval and early modern topics. I'm so glad that you brought up Utz's book because it also had a big effect on my thinking about medieval music. And in fact, it felt like in some ways a confirmation of some of the thoughts that I've had about teaching and presenting medieval music. Our intent actually is to include some arts events also in our symposia. And uh, thank goodness that can be done virtually as well as in person. Yeah, so we're all working together on this, and we have a variety of humanities fields in MRSC. 
That includes history, English, classical and modern languages, literatures, art history, of course, music, philosophy, and importantly, membership from people at the museum at, at TTU. So we represent a really wide range of disciplinary perspectives, but we come together around a shared interest in the pre-modern past. Beyond this, though, I think one thing that we all probably share in common is the goal of communicating the significance of this distant period of the past and in the process challenging preconceptions and prejudices about it. Uh, It's usually actually quite easy to get students to see the medieval and early modern periods as interesting, exciting, uh, maybe even entertaining. And certainly this is aided in part by all the medievalism that you see today in popular culture. There are no shortage of Netflix shows or interesting media that you can find online that deal with with these pre-modern topics. So it's easy to get people interested in the door, so to speak, but the real work begins uh, when you start to, A, try to get students to move beyond the easy tropes and stereotypes about this world, which you often find in a lot of the popular media, and then B, push them to reflect on how struggling to understand this pre-modern world. And I do emphasize struggle there. It's always a process, a continuous process. That struggle is a worthwhile project that could benefit them uh, in their day-to-day lives. And I'm glad our colleagues here are mentioning all of these things. I'm in a kind of an odd position where I'm kind of straddling the world of public K-12 education and higher education most of my educational experience at this point has been in the university world. I'm trained as a, as a medieval historian. Uh, but in my current role, I'm the development coordinator for Lubbock ISD, which serves around 27,000 students in, in Lubbock. I work primarily on building community and other uh, kinds of academic partnerships for the district, writing grants for the district, and making sure that students are able to engage in innovative educational opportunities. Specifically for this working group, I'm involved because I'm a historian and I study history education. I've been reading a lot of work from the Stanford History Education Group and the faculty members that work with history education, maybe more particularly with my work in my book manuscript that, fingers crossed, is going to come out the first half of next year, focusing on the medieval undergraduate classroom. And we're trying to answer questions related to what those academic expectations are between a high school classroom and the undergraduate classroom. What is it that we're really trying to teach them, especially in those 1,000 or 2,000 level introductory courses? Is it really a survey or are we trying to teach students what it is to be a historian or an investigator of somebody that lived a long time ago? And at least in my experience, we do way too much of the former where we're throwing content at students to the detriment of the latter, which is where the, the cool stuff is, right? How historians engage with all of that content in the past. I think it's great to have Lane's perspective as we move forward to expand the profile of the Medieval and Renaissance Study Center to reach out to faculty and students engaged in those areas at all different levels. Yeah, I agree, Angie. Lane's work is also important for introducing the critical questioning of our past global histories in the schools so that those children will become informed adults and some of them will grow up to study with us at TTU. We can kind of think of this as a long-term recruitment plan. Yeah, and it's a great space for medieval studies to make more movement into. Medieval Academy of America, for example, just a few years ago formed the K-12 committee. And I'm hoping they're going to be doing a lot of good work in that space. And so if, if one of our jobs as educators or advocates of the field is to find or inspire future medievalists 
and to grow the public impact of the field in a positive way, it needs to start with young people. I read Tolkien and C.S. Lewis when I was in middle school. I love those books. I had a great world history teacher in high school. I got to build a castle as a project and found out that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien had advanced medieval studies degrees. And so I thought, well, if I want to do that kind of writing, then I need to go get graduate degrees in medieval studies or something. And that cool factor of the Middle Ages, especially for young people, can't really be underestimated. And teachers would jump at the chance to have folks like us at practicing medieval exhibit creators or medieval librarians and all of these sorts of people come to their classrooms and show students the kind of stuff that they're working on. I think that's great. And as we expand the horizons of the Medieval Renaissance Study Center, I think we'll be able to do a lot more outreach. And I know that that's something that we're interested in in terms of long-term planning. So the funding for this series of symposia is a great way to move forward with more visibility for the center and more public activity too. Janice, could you give us a brief overview of the Humanities Center grant? Yeah, sure. The Humanities Working Group grant is helping to fund three Medieval Renaissance Studies Centers events over three years. Eager to keep our scope as broad and interdisciplinary and global as possible, we titled our project Arts, Histories, Literatures of the World, 500-1500 CE. That's going to cover the whole expanse of the Middle Ages and can be from anywhere in the world and from any discipline. So in spring 2021, we will host the first virtual symposium, mainly consisting of papers from the Medieval Renaissance Studies affiliated faculty and all of our students. The idea is to keep it small in order to facilitate contact across campus, which has been really difficult during the last couple of semesters due to the pandemic. However, we will have as our keynote speaker, Professor Geraldine Heng from UT Austin, who I'm sure will attract a very wide remote audience via Zoom. In 2022, we plan our second event to be the invitation of a director from another medieval renaissance or early modern studies center to brainstorm with us on other ideas about expanding our student numbers and our activities as a research center. And then finally, in 2023, we'll host a larger conference in the year of Texas Tech Centenary. So that will be an exciting event. We uh, don't have anything particular planned yet, but we'll have probably two keynote speakers and, uh, and a large national call for papers and make it a big event. So we're really looking forward to that. I'm glad you brought up Geraldine Hing because when we first discussed the Humanity Center Working Group grant, my mind went immediately to inviting my friend and colleague Geraldine Hing, whom I had met years ago when she was a Pembroke fellow uh, at Brown University uh, where I was studying. And her book on medieval romance, Empire of Magic, Medieval Romance and the Politics of Cultural Fantasy, has been a central influence in my scholarship on Middle English verse romances. More recently, her new book, The Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages, has inspired me to prep and teach a new senior level course for the spring, which will be good timing, called Race in the Middle Ages. She and I reconnected after a public lecture she gave this fall, and, and so I'm excited that she will be giving the plenary lecture at the symposium in the spring. Her timely work, as well as other recent scholarship, demonstrates the necessity of educating others uh, on a medieval past from which we have inherited troubling racializing forms of institutional discrimination. 
At the same time, we can confront misappropriation, as Jake mentioned earlier, of medieval history by white supremacist groups, uh, for example. We can confront their misappropriation with more accurate historical complexity. I'm excited about this working group because it offers engaged educational spaces where these timely issues of race and identity construction in the Middle Ages can be discussed. And with this project, I'm able to expand my own research into pre-modern race and into the current racist uses of the past. For example, in addition to Hing's book, uh, I just started reading another new book called The Devil's Historians, How Modern Extremists Abuse the Medieval Past by Amy Kaufman and Paul Sturdevant. I'm uh, really excited about this talk in the spring by Dr. Hang and looking forward to all the programming that we have in the works and the future symposium, all facilitated by the funding that we're getting through the Humanities Center. And we're hoping that this really elevates the profile of the Medieval and Renaissance Studies Center at TTU and allows us to make more connections across campus and in the community of scholars at similar medieval and Renaissance programs across the country. I'd like to say thanks again to the TTU Humanities Center, and we hope to see all of you out there who are listening to us uh, at our special events. The symposium for this spring will take place virtually on April 24th, 2021, We hope you'll stay tuned for more details on the Humanities Center website and on our website, too. Just Google TTU Medieval and Renaissance Studies, and it should take you right to that site. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks, Angela and Janice. These two examples reveal the unbound ways that the Humanities Center at Texas Tech encourages understandings of the human, sometimes by interrogating the very limits of that category itself. With the coming of the spring semester, we will look to fund our next interdisciplinary collective, and we're excited to see what provocative juxtapositions will emerge from the next working group that we select. And that brings us to the end of this installment of Humanities Now!, In the conclusion of our first half season of episodes, we'll be on hiatus over winter break and we'll return with a new set of conversations in February. As always, I'd like to thank the Humanities Center staff, Justin Hughes, Tara Okopi, and Callie Watson, and Tyler Simpson for our original music. Till February, I'm Michael Borshek, and we hope that you and yours are safe and well.